All right, Romans 12, verse 17 through 21. Recompense to no man evil for evil. Provide things honest in the sight of all men. If it be possible, as much lies within you, live peaceably with all men. Dearly beloved, avenge not yourselves, but rather give place unto wrath. It is written, vengeance is mine, I will repay, saith the Lord. Therefore, if your enemy hungers, feed him. If he thirsts, give him something to drink. For in so doing, thou shalt heap coals of fire on his head. Don't be overcome of evil, but overcome evil with good. Uh, it's interesting that this text talks about vengeance. We, we tend to forget that revenge is a motive that governs the lives of a lot of people. And our prisons are filled with people who have gone out of their way to get vengeance on somebody who's done something wrong. So there are a lot of different reasons that this begins. One of them, of course, can be a loss of goods or property. Somebody takes something from you, then you find out who it is that has taken it. And of course, there's an anger that that swells up within your breast and you get upset about that, especially if you know who it is and then you call the authorities, then the authorities are unable to do anything about it. It's even worse if the person who has taken it from you then begins to mock you because they don't believe you can take it back. So these kind of attitudes suddenly develop within us. But then also when someone's dealing with a loss of dignity, which is when somebody shames you. I've said very often it's much better to humble yourself in the beginning rather than be humiliated later on. But if you've ever been humiliated, you know how it is. It's difficult to walk into a room because you wonder who all is talking about you. Everybody who looks at you, you're wondering what's going around inside their head. There's the embarrassment factor that's connected with it. And when shame becomes too much, then people want revenge. And, and, And these things happen often. The same thing if there's a loss of a family member. Here's somebody coming home from work. They're not bothering anybody. They're sitting in a stoplight. Somebody goes to sleep, coming across the intersection, or somebody's drunk. Then pretty soon they hit an innocent victim, and then it's your mom, your dad, or somebody loses their life. You go to the trial, and then the judge says something to the degree that this individual who caused the accident did not premeditate for it to occur. However, because they had a clean record, nothing has ever happened to them before, I'm only going to give them probation. So the person sitting there who's lost their parent or lost a relative is angry. And All you have to do is watch a few documentaries on television and you know I'm telling the truth when we say that revenge is an activity that millions of people have been involved with. And as I said, our prisons are filled with them. Well, it's, it's interesting to note that in the Bible, this whole motive of revenge, you can find it in a lot of different places. Let's go first of all to 1 Kings chapter 19. You'll be interested to know that Jezebel is a woman whose name is so infamous that it is rare that you find anybody who would name a daughter after this character in the Bible. Jezebel, she was a lady who worshipped Baal, which was a false god, an evil god. She also kept 
at least a thousand prophets that she brought into the palace once a week, once a month, every day, and fed them. Can you imagine taking the taxpayers' money and uh, feeding these false prophets every day all of the best kinds of foods you could possibly think? That's what Jezebel did. Now, Jezebel and Ahab were people that the Scripture says were wicked. In fact, when it talks about Ahab, it says that Ahab was more wicked than anybody up until his time. And, and I can tell you, his wife was everything that he was times two. And, and she, she was terrible. She, she was involved with manipulation. She was involved with intimidation. She wanted to induce fear in people when she couldn't get her way. She made sure that people were murdered. If you've read the story of Nabal's vineyard, you know how she went out of the way to get his property. And when her husband couldn't get it through legal means, she went out of her way to conspire against him, had him stoned as well as his sons. But in this instance, Elijah, the man of God, he calls out the prophets of Baal for a contest. Now, this is an important point because whenever in the Bible you have an Ahab or Jezebel, God always has an Elijah. There will always be somebody that will speak the word of the Lord without fear to people who are trying to intimidate everybody else. And so Elijah said, you bring all your false prophets. I'll meet you folks on the top of Mount Carmel and we'll see whose God is the strongest. The God that answers by fire, he's the strong one. So the prophets of Baal got up there around noontime or early in the morning, late morning, whenever it was, and they started doing their little uh, prayers and nothing happened and pretty soon the scripture says they started calling on their god and and elijah was just kind of over there just had his chin in his elbow looking at all of this and said your, your god has to be on vacation because he's not answering he's not saying anything so the prophets of baal said we know what will move our god he needs blood so they got up there with knives and cut their wrists and their arms and parts of their body and the blood ran down Still, no movement. Well, the, the, the challenge was build an altar, put a sacrifice on the altar. Then your God needs to supply fire from the heavens on the sacrifice to demonstrate that he's real. Well, that sacrifice was as cold and as lifeless at the end of all of their dancing as it was at the beginning of all their prayers. So Elijah, now he gets up there because you know, it's not enough to curse the darkness. You've got you to gotta bring the real once you get up there. Otherwise, if you mock everybody else, if you can't produce what is genuine and true, pretty soon everybody's going gonna, gonna to stone you. So Elijah gets up and he says, Father, I, I just pray that you would be the one that answers by fire to demonstrate that you're the true God. And he told them people, he said, pour some water around that, that, that sacrifice. And they poured some water around. He said, do it a few more times. And they did it. He prayed. Fire came down, sacrifice was consumed, water evaporated because of the heat. Everybody fell on their faces and started worshiping God. And Elijah made sure that each of those prophets lost their lives. So in 1 Kings 19, when Jezebel discovers that her friends are dead, listen to what she says in verse number 2, because it was reported to her in verse number 1. Then Jezebel sent a messenger unto Elijah, saying, So let the gods do to me, and more also, if I make not your life as one of them by tomorrow this time. I think it's fair to say she was angry. 
Yeah. And notice she said, let the gods do to me. She didn't care anything about Jehovah. She wasn't interested in the true God or the real God. She had her own God. And she said, let my God help me do to you what you just did to the false prophets in my religion. So this lady had vengeance in her heart. I, I can tell you if if the objective of your life is going to be vengeance to get even with people, then I can tell you the end of your life going to be ugly it's going to be ugly because you will always have someone who will in turn do what you've done to other people so never forget the the person in school that bullies all the kids is one day going to come in contact with somebody that's going to bully them it's going to happen they just don't see see it coming at all and as the scripture says it, it, what goes up comes down. What goes around comes around. If you do wrong to people, it's going to come back to you. Well, how did Jezebel die? Her, her death was terrible. Jehu was coming into the city. She wanted to see him, so she was in the palace. They told her he was coming. She went and got up in the window, and she was putting all her makeup on, trying to get as pretty as she could. And as Jehu passed by, he said, is there anybody up there on my side? And a couple of eunuchs looked out, of, looked out the window. And he said, throw her down. And from the palace wall, and you know it, it was high up there, because as the scripture describes, as she was coming down, the blood was hitting the side of the palace wall, and then she hit the ground, and a chariot just rolled over her. I mean, they didn't even bother to stop. Dead body or body just hit the ground, and the chariot driver just keeps right on going, and the dogs came by, licked up the blood, and ate what was left and didn't leave but the palms of her hands. If you live in a way that is harmful and hateful, people are not going to care when you disappear. Yeah, that's vengeance. Look at look at how Mussolini died. Hung his body upside down and the people, the citizens just went by and just beat his head. I mean, to, to, to the point where his face was just swell up on his body. You couldn't even recognize who he was. Look at Saddam Hussein. People abandoned him. And here's a man that was worth billions of dollars come to the end of his days and he's hiding in a little spider hole. Think of Gaddafi. As bad as he was in treating people, and they got the video pictures of the citizens grabbing him and putting him up in front of the cameras, people are slapping him. If you're going to be a wicked leader and a wicked person, then when wicked things happen to you or bad things happen to you, people are going to stand back, and they might, they, 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 they might with their faces say, oh, that's terrible what's taking place, but they're not going to care at all. Let's look at another one. Go a couple of chapters ahead. Go to 1 Kings 22. What about her husband? Mr. Ahab. Well, of course, Ahab was not a man's man. And his wife had to do nearly everything for him to get something done. But in this situation here, you can look at, start with verse 1, 2, and 3. Ahab had a visitor by the name of Jehoshaphat. Now, Jehoshaphat was a righteous king. And as they were sitting there one day, Ahab said to Jehoshaphat, Look, it's not right that that village that belongs to us is still under the care and governorship of the Syrians. Let's go to battle. Let's take it back. 
And Jehoshaphat said, look, I'm, I'm willing to go to battle with you. But in verse 7, he said, do we have a prophet of the Lord that can talk to us? Well, Ahab already had prophets that told him to go to battle. He would win. But Jehoshaphat didn't trust that because Jehoshaphat and Ahab worshiped different gods. And Jehoshaphat wanted a true prophet of God to deliver the word of the Lord. But, but Ahab already had his friends that had said, man of God, you go to battle, you're going to win. So finally, Jehoshaphat said, I'm not going anywhere with you until you get me somebody that can really tell us the truth. And that's when Ahab told him, I do know a man who can prophesy for Jehovah, but he never has anything good to say about me. I love that. <laughs> he never has anything good to say about me. Well, maybe if they don't have anything good to say about you, because maybe you're not a good person, Ahab. So they call for this man by the name of Micaiah there in verse 13. And Micaiah, he kind of he kind of goes through the motions and Ahab said, look, what's the word of the Lord? We want to go, go and fight. Now, my prophets have already told us that we can go, but it's your time to be on the platform, so you tell me what you think. And he just kind of mocked him. He said, look, go to battle. Go and do whatever you want to do. You're going to come out victorious. And Ahab said, uh, I, I, I can see you not giving me, giving me the truth. Would you uh, tell me exactly what, what the king is saying here. So verse 18, the king of Israel said to Jehoshaphat, didn't I tell you that he, he, he wouldn't prophesy no good concerning me but evil? And finally, Micaiah said, look, I had a vision and I saw Israel on the mountains and they were like sheep that were scattered. And I saw people in the presence of the Lord. And then I heard a voice. All these spirits came in the presence of the Lord. And the Lord said, who will be a lying spirit in the mouth of Ahab's prophets? And one said, I'll be glad to go. All of them were speaking under the inspiration of a familiar spirit. And Micaiah let Ahab know that because you are following a false spirit, starting with verse 21 going on down, nothing but trouble is coming to you. And so Ahab said, well, I tell you what, I don't like what you said. He said, arrest him and put him in jail. Incarcerate him. They took the prophet of God, put him in jail, and Ahab said, you're going to be in jail until I come back. And Micaiah the prophet said, if you come back in peace, if you come back alive, God has not spoken by me. You're going to die. Sure enough, they had the man of God incarcerated, Ahab, and then went to battle. And as the scripture tells us, Ahab's death, it was a bad one. He was out there in one of those chariots and in the thick of the battle and somebody with a bow and arrow shot that arrow it hit him in the back of his spine he just kind of slumped down in that seat told his driver get him out of the battle and said by the time he got out the blood had run down and drenched uh the uh the chariot and there he died there he died here's a man that put a man of god in jail because the man of god told the truth some people don't want the truth some people want false prophets of Baal to speak to them what is a lie, to tell them what they want to hear, to tickle their ears. But if God gives us 
people who declare the word with truth and they're not afraid of how big we are, how much money we have, and they're not afraid of where we live and all that kind of a thing. We ought to be proud and happy that God supplies these kinds of people in the earth. Most folks would have gone to the top of the mountain with the false prophets of Baal and they would have given an award to the false prophets. Said, look, let me give you the Templeton Prize. You, 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 you've done so much on behalf of religion. We're so happy that you've done all that you've done. But not Elijah. Elijah went up there and said, look, God's going to bring fire and that'll be the end of it. And this man here, Micaiah, he wasn't interested in any prizes or rewards. The only thing that mattered to him, what does God say? What does God say? And if God says it, I'll declare it. Let's turn to Esther, chapter number three. Beautiful story. You just go keep, keep turning your pages forward. You're going to go past your, your chronicles and Nehemiah and Ezra, and you're going to come to Esther, go to chapter three. This is a lovely story. Deal, deals with revenge and retaliation. The king had a wife that he loved, and he had a party one time, and this is chapter 1 now, and he had a party and he told his wife, because she was so beautiful, he wanted her to come in there so he could show her off to all of the different princes and leaders that were there. And she decided she was going to say no. Well, that pretty much was the end of her being the queen. And so they had this this big, huge deal where they've got to find other people that are going to take her place. And so this, this, this book may have what technically may be called the world's first beauty pageant. And so all these ladies get involved, and they're getting beautif- beautified and everything. And Esther is one of them, and she ends up becoming the queen. Well, the king had somebody working for him by the name of Haman. Haman was a very proud, arrogant man. The king promoted Haman, made him basically the number two man in the kingdom, so that when Haman walked through the city or was carried through the city in some kind of contraption where people, men would be under him and they'd see him coming through, people would bow down or kiss his hand or something like that. And so he was used to that. And if you're, and if you're a person who has that kind of of authority and office where you're used to people bowing down like certain kings in this world have today, then you, you, you certainly begin to think more highly of yourself than you should because everyone is constantly showing you deference and bowing. Well, this one day he was out there and there was a gentleman who was Esther's uncle, a guy by the name of Mordecai, and Mordecai saw him coming along, and Mordecai wouldn't bow. He just stood there and just looked at him. As Haman was coming by, Mordecai, Mordecai did what, what some folks do to me when I'm preaching. <sighs> just yawned, you know, just wasn't impressed at all. And, and, and Haman, Haman said, back this up and try this one more time. And, and Mordecai, he wouldn't bow. And so the scripture says that Haman got angry at Mordecai. So in chapter 3 then, notice what it says in verse 5. When Haman saw that Mordecai bowed not, nor did him reverence, then was Haman full of wrath. 
See, see, Mordecai, he said, elephants will roost in trees before I ever bow before you. That's what he said. And, and Mordecai wouldn't bow. So in verse 6, he thought scorn to lay hands on Mordecai alone, for they had shown him the people of Mordecai. So he, he didn't want to just hurt Mordecai. He wanted to hurt all of the people of his ethnic group because he found out he was Jewish. So think about this. One man refused to bow. So because one man wouldn't bow, another man decided, let's kill everybody that's of his religion and ethnicity. That's terrible. That's wicked. And that's wrong. And that's exactly what Haman set in motion. He even had the king sign a little piece of paper that said on a certain day of the year, if you see a Jew, get your hands on a Jew. If you can find a Jew, you can kill him. And when that sheet of paper went out throughout the land, Mordecai found out. He took his clothes off, started fasting and praying, put on sackcloth and ashes, told his his uh, his niece. He said to Esther, he said, look, honey, he said, you, you're in a position right now where you've got to intercede for all of us. One man hates me so much. He's going to kill us all. And Don't think you're going to escape because you're every bit as Jewish as I am. But let's just believe that God has called you to the kingdom for such a time as this. Well, according to the tradition, if you went into the presence of a Persian king, you had to stand out there in the court. And if he stuck his scepter up and said, come on in, then that meant you had favor and you could come talk to him. But if you stood up there and he looked up there at you and then looked back at what he was doing and didn't stick that scepter up, then, then people just drug you on out and you lost your life because you were bold enough to try to come and get in the presence of the king. Well, the king liked Esther, and Esther explained her situation to the king, and she said, could we have a banquet, and it'd just be you and me and Haman? He said, a banquet? She said, oh, yes, just, just, we'll just have all the best food and everything. She said, that'll, he said, that'll be, that'll be wonderful. Let me tell Haman. So Haman found out he was invited to a party with just the king and the queen. He was so excited, he went home through a mini party. Invited his family and friends and said, look, I've been invited to dine alone with a king and a queen. Folks love me. But what does this matter seeing that this Mordecai man won't bow when I walk by? What should we do? What can I do to kill him? They all start putting their heads together. Said, look, build some gallows and hang them from the thing. Embarrass them in front of everybody. His wife said, Absolutely. You don't run into a lot of women named Zeresh either, which was his wife's name. Yeah. She said, build the gallows. They started working on them. He went to the party with the king and the queen. Esther revealed her plan. She explained to the king how Haman had conspired to kill every Jewish person throughout the empire. And the king could not believe that all of this was on the basis of revenge. Because somebody wouldn't bow. You say, what happened in the end? Well, the king walked out. He was thinking about this. Esther was on the bed. Haman went to the bed, threw himself on the bed, started pleading for his life, begging her to spare him. And he obviously had taken hold to her because when the king walked back in, it looked like he was forcibly sexually assaulting his wife. He said, oh, my goodness. Now you're going to force yourself upon my wife? And they took Haman out. And hung him on the gallows he built 
for Esther. Excuse me, for Mordecai. Who's it for? For Mordecai. So then here, here's, here's the point. The Proverbs tell us if you dig a ditch for somebody else, you'll fall in it. If you set a snare for other people, you'll be the one to become entrapped in it. And most people don't realize that when they get so angry that they want to get even, that the plots and things that they get involved with to try to bring harm to other people, to try to undermine somebody else's authority, they don't realize that what's really taking place is they're diminishing themselves and they're going to get caught in their own web. They just don't see it. Haman never saw this coming. And had he known that he'd be the one on those gallows, he'd have never listened to anybody at that little party he threw at his house. Because he would have said, absolutely not. Well, let's go to Matthew 14. Let me give you one more. Matthew 14. This is the, another story of revenge. This is the, the account in scripture of how John the Baptist lost his life. Long before there ever was a Patrick Swayze, there was dirty dancing in Matthew chapter 14. Look at verse 1. At that time, Herod the Tetrarch heard the fame of Jesus and said unto his servants, This is John the Baptist. He's risen from the dead. Therefore, mighty works do show forth themselves in him. Herod laid hold on John and bound him and put him in prison for Herodias' sake, his brother Philip's wife. For John said to him, It's not lawful for you to have her. Now, I wish... I, I, I had just did a study on the whole Herodian family because you talk about wickedness. We're talking about people that murdered their own parents by strangulation. We're talking about all kinds of rape and incest and all of this. But in this instance here, Herod and Herodias are together in matrimony because Herod had his brother killed. And John the Baptist said in verse 4, what you have done is unlawful, unscriptural. Now, what king is there that wants to be told that what they're doing is wrong? None. Most people in a position of power don't want to hear anything about what they're doing is wrong. In verse 5, he would have killed him, but he feared the multitude because the people thought he was a prophet. But when Herod's birthday was kept, the daughter of Herodias danced before them and pleased Herod, whereupon he promised with an oath to give her whatsoever she asked. In the other chapter, it tells us, he said, I'll give you up to half my kingdom. Think about it. So here is a man that is married to his sister-in-law. And their marriage came together in a way that, according to Scripture, disallows it. Says it's not even correct. And a man of God points a finger at a king and says, what you're doing is wrong. It's a sin. Now, we need more people like John the Baptist in the earth, folks. The coming, coming of the Lord <clears throat> certainly is soon. We don't know when, but, but we need people like John the Baptist to herald his coming and also to point out what folks are doing that's not, that's not right. Every time I hear about these prayer breakfasts that people have, these preachers get up there, and before they get up there, I don't know if you know this, but before they get up there at these, these meetings, then all of the president's staff brief them on what they're not supposed to talk about 
when they pray or when they speak. You're not supposed to pray about politics. You're not to say anything that's going to be controversial or offensive. Well, there would be little reason for me to go and pray. Because if I had an opportunity, I know exactly how, how I would pray. I'd sit down and work on that thing because of the issues that we have in our nation. But, but John the Baptist was not fearful. He declared the word of the Lord, and now he's in jail. But every day, Herodias is burning up in her heart because she's mad. Because as long as he's alive, there's somebody to keep saying that the relationship she has is not justified. You think about our current situation today and, and the way that people have, have, have really redefined what you consider to be marriage. And as long as you have people that are saying it's unlawful for that to, have to, for that to occur, you will have people angry and wanting to see Christians and other people set aside. That kind of thing. And people plot and try to figure out ways to get rid of those voices so that they don't declare the truth. Well, Herod had a party, and he had hundreds and hundreds of people there. And, of course, if you have a party and lots of people and lots of food and lots of alcohol, then you're going to have lots of trouble. So this man, Herod, and I just am astounded every time I think about this, that this man calls for his niece, who's also his stepdaughter, to come and dance in front of all these people. Isn't that amazing? How, how, do, you, how do you even do that? You know, how, how, how do you do that? So she came out there, and however she was twisting and wiggling her body, it, it must have been something that was quite remarkable, because most people don't turn around and say, I'll give you half my kingdom for what you've been doing. That little girl had to be something. And when the king said that, she, she decided, well, I don't want to make this decision on my own. Let me go and talk to mama. When she went and talked to mama, mama said, you tell him that you want the head of John the Baptist on the platter. Now, this man was in jail. He was bound. He didn't have access to anybody. Likely nobody had access to him. And she is still livid. That this man is still living. How in the world can we have him alive down there in the dungeon when we're up here every night together in bed and he's telling people it's wrong? I want him dead. So she obviously was stewing over this. And, and sure enough, you can see that the king, verse 9, he was very sorry, but he had made a promise. He couldn't go back on it. The Bible says where the word of the Lord is, excuse me, where the word of a king is, there's power. Says that in the Old Testament. So verse 10, he sent for the executioner, and John was beheaded. Man was beheaded because of a dance. See? Because of a dance. In verse 11, his head was brought in a charger and given to the damsel, and she brought it to her mother. So imagine that. You're the executioner. You decapitate John the Baptist. You put the head on a charger, put a top on it. You make your way to the daughter and give it to her. You let her know that this is exactly who it is. And she goes and gives it to her mother. And you know mama started gloating. It was happy. The Bible says not to rejoice in iniquity. 
So here we are. Revenge, retaliation. You can see it over and over through the scriptures where people have gotten angry with people and wanted to see them, see their lives ended. So coming back to Romans 12, Paul gives us principles that we should live by because he is quite familiar with all of these stories. He sees what takes place during the Roman Empire, just like we observe what's taking place in our own nation. And he says in verse 17, don't recompense anybody evil for evil. If somebody does something bad to you, don't give it back to them. If somebody gives you bad words, you don't have to curse back at them. Somebody hits you on one side of the cheek. He's saying you don't have to start brawling. That's what he said. Somebody robs you. You don't have to go in turn and break into their house and try to rob them. Scripture says provide things honest in the sight of all men. Do what's right, Paul says. Now he goes on to say, (coughs) excuse me. If it's possible, as much as is within you, live peaceably with all men. So we're Christian. The Prince of Peace lives inside of us. Jesus said in the Gospel of John, my peace I leave with you. So if, if, if that peace is within us, then we have the ability to live peaceably. But the key is, if it be possible, as much as lies within you. There may be a form of peace in you that's there in greater measure than maybe in somebody else. But if you can try to keep the peace, do everything you can. You do not have to respond by just yelling at people. And, and, and getting upset because I can promise you in the end, you will be the one apologizing. That will be you. Now, now about 18 years ago, when I first come to this town, one of the little restaurants uh, here, they, you know, if you, you call in, you can get takeout food. And so I hadn't been here six months. Nobody knew who I was. So I called the restaurant. And I said, hey, I'm Pastor Daryl. And Who? So I'm, I'm Pastor Darrell, King of Kings. I like to order fried chicken dinner or something like that. And so they wouldn't take my order. I said, well, I know you do takeout orders because I've been in there eating, seeing people come in and get the order. And so the, the waitress lady hung up on me. Well, I wasn't as sanctified then as I am now. So I got off that telephone, got in my car, and drove over there to that restaurant right over there. What was it called? Ortman's? Is that what it was called? Yeah, went over to that restaurant, and and the waitress was there, and there was a whole lot of people in there. So I I went in there, and she obviously knew who I was coming through that door, and I came through the door. She had words with me. I had words with her, and nobody ate anything as they were looking at all this drama, but I left with my chicken dinner. I get home, oh my goodness, oh my goodness, I'm, I, I can't even enjoy that, I'm feeling like a heel. So I get in the car, I go all the way back over there and apologize in front of all those people and say, I'm so sorry. And the, the waitress lady went on and became a really, really good, good friend of mine. And um, we always talked and we always laughed about that whenever I had to go in for uh, those rotary meetings when they still going going over there. 
But but here's the thing. Here's something that, that I learned out of that, and you can learn out of this too. When you have occasion to get angry and respond and react and say something's not so good, it's a whole lot easier during that moment to just go ahead and bite your tongue than it is to have to go back and say, I'm sorry. It's a whole lot easier. Now, you, you may feel as good as I did for that 30 seconds. Just thunder and lightning is manifesting, you know. But when, 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 when God the Holy Ghost starts laying those stripes on you and conviction comes inside, you're going to feel like a heel. And if you don't respond to God, you're not going to be able to sleep. It's going to be hard to con- contain and control your thoughts. And you're constantly going to be thinking about the fact that I know I've dishonored God. So looking here at Romans 12, verse 19. Dearly beloved, don't avenge yourselves, but rather give place to wrath. Now there are two ways to look at that. Number one, if somebody gets upset and they have an outburst, uh, just, just go on and step back and let that occur. You can't control other people's attitudes and actions anyhow. The other way to look at that is give place to wrath in the sense knowing that it's the wrath of God that's going to bring the vengeance. Because the next part of the verse says, give place unto wrath because it is written, vengeance is mine. Let God handle it. You don't have an enemy that's bigger than your God. Now the problem with a lot of this is that God doesn't move as fast as we think he ought to on our enemies. And and. It's, it's a whole lot easier to start praying those prayers that David prayed. Lord, uh, my enemies are harassing me and bothering me. I pray that their left arm would shrivel up and fall off and, and Lord, cut their heads off and take their legs or all that. You can, you can pray all of that if you want to, but I mean, you're not going to get any movement at all from God on that because it says in the Sermon of the Mount, pray for your enemies. Bless those that hate you despitefully use you. We're not the eye for an eye people anymore under the old covenant. We're the love covers a multitude of sin kind of people. So he says, give place unto wrath. Vengeance belongs to me. It took 20 years, but Joseph found out that it was true. He found out it was true. God took care of him. You you think of uh, Jacob. It took 20 years. God took care of Jacob, God took care of Esau, and God took care of Jacob's father-in-law. Just because you think God's not moving on your behalf, that does not mean God's not moving in a lot of different ways. There are a whole lot of employers who have prayed employees off the job. And there are a whole lot of employers who have prayed employees away. You may have been involved with that. Lord, I love my job. I just don't like my boss. Could you promote him? Could you open a door for him to move, take a lateral move in another direction? See, that's we, we pray for God to do wonderful things for him to save and for him to bless people. So verse 20, if your enemy is hungry, you feed him. Now, that's not the common way that we act. If our enemy is hungry, we eat in front of him or her. And we tell them how good the food tastes. Here's the scripture way. If they hunger, you feed them. If they thirst, you give them something to drink. Because in doing so, you heap coals of fire on his head. 
You know, somebody has a cold heart towards you and despises you and doesn't like you, good deeds, by blessing them, you, you, you figuratively put these coals of fire above them. Now, what does fire do? It causes, causes things to thaw out and melt. Maybe God can turn the heart of the person that doesn't like you towards you so that they one day will like you. And the only way this can happen, God has to leave you in, the, in contact with the person that doesn't like you and the person you don't get along with too well. That's what God does. We're praying sometimes, Lord, get them out of our life. And the Lord sometimes saying, well, they're in your life because I'm working on you. I want you to pray and I want you to change your actions. Then finally, don't be overcome of evil, but overcome evil with good. Well, I got a whole lot of stories that go with all this, but I think I've told you enough already. And thank the Lord for forgiveness. And thank the Lord that we can all live above and beyond revenge. Yeah, that's, that's not good. I'll tell you a story about my grandma real fast. My, my grandparents come out of the South. <clears throat> and so there was a, a period of time where when they first came up to Ohio, that my grandpa, he was what they used to call a rolling stone. He just thought he didn't just have to have one young lady. He could have more than one young lady. So my grandma used to tell me this story. I said, well, how did you cure him of that? She said, well... She said, I, <clears throat> I found out one, one, um, one evening where he was supposed to rendezvous and get together with somebody. So she said he didn't uh, know it, but uh, while they were together, I went and, and followed them, went and got in the back seat of the car, put a blanket over me down behind the car. And so when, when, when they got back in that car and they were making that sweet talk and all that, she said, I came out from under that blanket with a knife as big as a machete. And she had no intention of killing him, but she said she swung that thing at him. Them car doors opened up. She said had a faithful man for the rest of her marriage. I said, that'll do her. She is a good Nebraskan lady, see? <laughs> Come on, let's pray. Father, we thank you, we love you, we honor you. We're so grateful, oh God. That you care for us as you do. Continue to lead and guide us through the word. Jesus mighty name. And everyone said amen, amen, amen.